It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythology, the ParCast original devoted to telling humanity's oldest stories. We've got something exciting and a little bit different in store for the next two weeks. Each week we'll be bringing you not one, but two episodes as we begin our four-part retelling of the ancient classic, The Aeneid. Written in the first century BCE by the Roman poet Virgil, the Aeneid continues the story started by Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey. It was written while Rome was recovering from the devastation of civil war, and the people were hopeful that the newly appointed emperor Augustus might usher in an age of peace. To discuss the qualities that such a leader would need, Virgil looked to the ancient past, a time before the decline of Greek civilization and the rise of Rome. His story offers an alternate perspective on the events of the Trojan War, following the warrior Aeneas after his city was destroyed by Greek armies. He was forced to wander for many years before finally reaching the distant shores of Italy, where his offspring were destined to found the Roman Empire. I'll be telling the story from the perspective of Aeneas's mother, Venus, the Roman goddess of beauty and love, who the Greeks called Aphrodite. Her conflict with Juno, the queen of the gods, serves as the backdrop of the tale and represents the larger struggle between embracing our destiny with honor or avoiding it and inviting dishonor. Join me as we go back to a time when Greece's might was at its zenith, but a new power was destined to rise. When the muses whispered this tale to Virgil, they spoke of arms and a man, wars and warriors, cities felled and raised. But for me, it was the story of my son. I carried him to Mount Ida when he was born. I nursed him, swaddled him, watched him up close every day for five years. And then, from afar, after I delivered him to his mortal father. What I saw was suffering and endless trials. The gods' hearts are not impervious, and mine broke for him every day. When he fought on the fields of Troy, I reveled in his victories. When he left his burning home behind, I wept. And when the greatest storm I'd seen in an age bore down on his fleet, I feared as I did not know a goddess could. The storm broke on Aeneas's fleet with the force of a hundred armies. Trojan sailors shouted over the din, their voices lost on the wind, as a great cloud plunged them into the darkest night. The maelstrom battered the ships for hours. Men went into the sea, boats onto rocks. Aeneas clung to the railing, limbs limp with exhaustion. Everywhere he looked, he saw death. The sea littered with the bodies of his men and the shields and treasure of Troy. Lightning tore the sky, and I saw Jupiter's own fury reflected in my son's eyes. Aeneas raised a fist and shouted into the storm. Like this, he cried out in a strangled voice. Why did you not let us die at Troy with our friends? Why let us suffer so long just to end it all here? Aeneas's outburst was cut short by a mighty tearing sound. The sail had split. Aeneas was thrown to the deck as the squall wrenched the stern, turning the ship broadside to the storm. He looked up to see a mountain of water towering above. The mast groaned, and the wave crashed down and let the sea in. I thought of my son's words many times after that. Was I wrong to protect him? 
I only ever wished for his happiness, but every day that he lived brought him more trouble. Should I have let him have the death he wanted? But it was not my place to decide. The fates said that he should live, and even the gods cannot change what they have seen. So I played my part. Doting mother or keeper of divine destiny, it did not matter. My goal was the same. Protect Aeneas and all would be well. What a fool I was. The first time I intervened was at the sack of Troy. I'd watched my son rise from troubled sleep, clouded by strange omens. Even as the dreams faded, he smelled the smoke and heard the clash of steel. Aeneas leapt to the window and stared out at the unfolding horror. Troy burning, armed Greeks choking the streets, cutting down men and women with abandon. And at the center of it all, the great wooden horse, glowing in the light of the orange fire like a gloating demon. Aeneas seized his weapons and raced out into the night, searching for fellow soldiers. He instead saw a priest of Apollo dragging his young grandson behind him. Aeneas called out to him, Which way to the stronghold? Where does Troy make its last stand? Last stand, groaned the priest. This is Troy's last day. Aeneas charged into the fray, drawn to the sounds of fighting. Soon he came upon a group of fellow Trojan soldiers. They were frightened, confused, but Aeneas rallied them. Brave hearts, men, though it won't save us. Troy is beyond hope, and so are we. So let us meet our fate head on. Like rabid wolves, they raced through the fog and billowing smoke, plunging through the Greek lines, hacking, sawing, driven forward by the knowledge that this was the end. Death in the streets, death on the ramparts. One by one, it came for Aeneas's comrades. One by one, they fell to the Greek swords and lances, overwhelmed by greater numbers, until only three were left. Still, Aeneas pushed on until they reached the palace. In he went, searching for any who could be saved. He found the old king of Troy impaled on an altar in the courtyard. His head had been severed from his armored body. Though he could hardly lift a spear, he had dressed for war one last time. As Aeneas took in the gruesome sight, he thought of his own father. Had the Greeks reached his house yet? Had they burned it to the ground with his son and wife inside? It was with these dark thoughts racing through his mind that he saw her, kneeling in the doorway of the Temple of Westa, a face too beautiful to forget, the face that launched a thousand ships and started the war between Trojans and Greeks. Helen of Troy. Aeneas watched her slink along the wall, clinging to the shadows. Who was she hiding from, he wondered. Her husband, Menelaus? The Spartan king had crossed the Aegean with all the armies of Greece to retrieve his bride after she eloped with the Trojan prince. The Greek soldiers? They had waged a war far from home for ten years over her infidelity. The Trojans? Their noble city lay in ruins because of her. All of them had cause to hate her, Aeneas realized, and so did he. Cold fury grew within him as he watched Helen creep through the darkness. She had brought his home nothing but death and disaster. Why should she be allowed to live while Priam lay dead on his altar, while the rivers ran red with Trojan blood? Aeneas strode forward, his mind set. She had not seen him yet. He lifted his sword, and then I caught his wrist. My son stared at me, eyes wide with wonder. No doubt he struggled to comprehend what he was seeing. I had not appeared to him since he was a boy, but he knew me all the same. Venus, he gasped. Mother! 
I touched his cheek, willing away the cloud of fury. What are you doing, my son? Is this to be your legacy? Cutting down an unarmed woman? Aeneas's rage flared. What do I care for legacy? He snapped. It's reward enough to rid the world of her treachery, to punish her for all of this. He gestured around at the smoking towers, the bloody altar. I shook my head. My son, you know better than to hang this on one woman. Helen's indiscretion was but one small moment, a link in an endless chain reaching back to the dawn of time. Even this tragedy is but a moment in a story that only the fates understand. Look around you. The gods have turned against Troy. No words would calm my son's raging heart. So I blew a cool mist onto his face, granting him the sight denied to mortal men. His eyes grew wide as they beheld the truth behind it all. There towered Neptune, god of the sea, shaking the earth with his trident and sending the great towers of Troy tumbling down. There was Minerva, blazing in the clouds, waving her shield with Medusa's head, striking terror into the hearts of the Trojans. Even Jupiter, king of the gods, was there, urging the Olympians on and filling Greek hearts with courage. We heard a shrill, high laugh. Aeneas turned to see her. Juno, queen of the gods, Jupiter's vengeful wife, towered over the city's gates, holding them open for her warriors. The Greeks who called her Hera. Her form was clouded in smoke, but her eyes blazed with fury. She did not care that the fates had seen the end of Troy. She was here for her own grudge. I wrapped my arms around my son, whispered in his ear, Run, my son. The gods have forsaken Troy, but they have not forsaken you. If you do not care for legacy, think of your family. I have shielded them as long as I could, but the Greeks will find them soon. Ascanius, he gasped and took off like a shot, Helen of Troy forgotten in the dark. Aeneas ran, lungs screaming, limbs flying. I kept close but out of sight, led the Greeks out of his way, opened paths through the flame, until at last he reached his home. His wife, Creusa, cried out in relief as he burst through the door. Their son, Ascanius, sat on the floor, eyes wide with fear. A heavy bag was slung over Creusa's shoulder, filled with grain and precious items. Where is my father? gasped Aeneas as soon as his lungs permitted. Creusa groaned. There's no reasoning with him. We've no choice but to leave him here. Aeneas! He dashed into the next room. Gray-haired Anchises stood at the window, watching Troy burn. Aeneas took his father's hand and begged him to come quickly, but the old man would not budge. If the gods wanted his life so badly, he was prepared to give it to them. But you and Creusa are young, said old Anchises. Take your child and run. I would only slow you down. Aeneas fell to his knees. You fool, he cried. Did you think I would leave my own father? If you're set on adding your death to the funeral pyre, then know you add ours too. I will not leave you. I watched the house fall into despair. Ascanius weeping on the floor, Creusa begging Aeneas to flee with them, Aeneas begging his father. Still, Anchises would not relent and neither would Aeneas. I cursed the old fool then. He had raised our son too well. As this took place, I saw the Greek soldiers running from house to house, killing all within. They would be at Aeneas's door soon. Desperate, I turned to my own father. Jupiter, king of the gods, loomed over the city, watching with calm satisfaction. I did not bother to hide my tears as I approached. 
I fell at his feet and told him all that had happened, that Aeneas would not leave, that my son would soon be killed, and all that had been foretold would not come to pass. Still Jupiter was not moved. And what of Rome? I shouted, knowingly overstepping my bounds. What crime did Aeneas commit to make you forget the fates? You said he was to found the great city. Did Juno change your mind? As I shouted the last words, I saw Jupiter shift. I have forgotten nothing, he said after a moment. Even I cannot change what is foretold by the fates. Aeneas will reach Italy. He will build the city of Latium and rule for three years. My mouth fell open. Three years? I said aghast. You said my son was to father an empire, that from him the noble Romans would rise to conquer all the land and seas of the earth. You promised, father. Jupiter continued, Aeneas will rule for three years, but his son, Ascanius, will rule for thirty, and his children for three hundred more, until his descendants establish the city of Rome. To those people, I will grant everything. My heart glowed at his words, for I had never heard the scroll of fate unfurled so plainly. I laughed, giddy, and said, Then, Father, something must be done. Give Anchises a sign, an omen to flee, so that Aeneas can escape. Jupiter turned to face me, eyes sparking. Know this, daughter, he growled. Aeneas's fate is set, and neither you nor I can change it. But the road shifts. Aeneas's honor is the future honor of Rome. Whether any is left after the journey is up to him. And as for how much he suffers, that is between you and my wife. That said, the king of the gods pointed a finger to the sky. A peal of thunder shook the heavens, and a shooting star came hurtling down. It streaked across the sky and crashed into the forest at the base of Mount Ida, leaving a trail of sulfur and smoke in its wake. From his house, Anchises' old eyes filled with wonder at the sight. He turned to Aeneas. That light is for you, my son. The gods have spoken. I relent. Let us flee. They fled into the night. Aeneas hurried forward as best he could, with his father on his shoulders and his son's small hand grasped in his own. Creusa trailed behind, dragging the heavy bag of supplies. Earlier that night, Aeneas had dove into battle with no thought of danger, but now, with three lives in his hands, he jumped at every shadow. They turned through narrow alleys, steering clear of the blazing heat eating its way across the city. Smoke curled from every house, rubble and the dead littered the streets. They heard no clash of steel, only shouts and screams, and the crackle of fire and then the sound of marching soldiers. Anchises groaned in his son's ear. Run, boy, I can see the glint of their shields. Aeneas ran, dragging his son beside him. His father grunted in pain with the shock of each step. They reached the rear gates. The passage was unguarded. Straight through to the other side, and still they ran, cresting hills and crossing fields, until at last he saw a crowd of Trojans gathered beneath a cypress tree, wrapped in cloaks and loading baskets of supplies into small riverboats, the last survivors of Troy. Aeneas groaned in relief as Anchises climbed down from his shoulders. He looked down at his son with pride. The boy hadn't complained once as Aeneas pulled him across the city. Then he looked around, and his heart filled with dread. Creusa was gone. It's too late, Anchises cried. 
but Aeneas was already running back to Troy. He retraced every step, turned down every alley through which they'd come. The city was a smoking maze, but no one knew it better. He was just beginning to despair when he saw her, standing in the shadow of an archway. Aeneas's heart leapt, and he raced toward his wife. Laughing with joy, he threw his arms around her, and they passed right through. Aeneas stepped back. Creusa stood before him, shimmering, translucent. She looked down in shame, and he followed her gaze to the stone street. Her solid, lifeless body lay huddled against the wall. I won't repeat the curses my son hurled at the gods then. Even I was not spared. I do not blame him. The special sight I'd granted him to see the gods had not yet worn off, and it revealed her shade to him. It must have been a shock. Nor will I repeat all the private words they shared. Creusa did what she could to ease his anguish. There would be days and days to grieve, she told him. She warned him what lay ahead, vast plains of sea and endless toil. Struggle, yes, but also joy. A kingdom in a distant land to call his own. A new wife. I don't think he heard her. He was so desperate to take her with him, but the fates had decreed that she would never leave these shores. She bid him farewell and told him to hold Ascanius close. And then she faded like a dream into the wind. The night was over. Aeneas turned and ran. Coming up, Aeneas and the surviving Trojans search for a new home. Now back to the story. Troy had fallen. Aeneas put the smoking husk of the city behind him and sailed north with 20 ships and some 2,000 refugees. They were all that remained of their people and would follow him wherever he led. Exiles, they drifted across the Aegean in search of a new home. And I, Venus, watched. I wasn't lying when I told Aeneas not to blame the sack of Troy on Helen, or when I said it was the gods' doing. What I didn't tell him was that it was my fault. Mine and Juno's, the family squabble if ever there was one. It started with the golden apple, one of that troublesome goddess Discordia's silly games. She wrote to the fairest on its face and tossed it between us. Three of us claimed it, Juno, Minerva, and myself. We asked Jupiter to choose between us, his wife and two daughters. Obviously, I was the clear choice, but father couldn't say that without incurring the wrath of the other two. He passed the task to the Trojan prince, Paris. Let him draw goddess's ire. Well, I knew the others wouldn't play fair, so why should I? We all appealed to Paris, offered him gifts only we could give. But I know what men want better than any. I made him a promise. The apple for the most beautiful woman on earth. Helen, wife of Menelaus, queen of Sparta. Knowing full well what a jealous creature my stepmother Juno could be, and my own son a Trojan, she hated the lot of them after that, conspired to wipe their city from the face of the earth. I thought that would be the end of it. Perhaps it would have been, if not for her beloved Carthage. Juno loved that city, perhaps even more than she hated Troy, and she loved its queen, the one who ruled without a man at her side. My stepmother saw herself in that woman, I think, and when she heard what the fates had wrought, that from Aeneas's line, Rome would rise and one day crush Carthage beneath its heel. Well, from that moment, no amount of my son's suffering would satisfy her. Recruiting other gods to her cause, Juno set winds and storms to drag my son far off course, as if he needed more trouble. The exiles were turned away at every port, 
Everyone had heard of the fall of Troy, and none would risk taking in the enemies of Greece. So they sailed on, battered by Juno's storms. Aeneas grew desperate. His son was growing up before his eyes on the deck of a ship. His old father was growing frail on meager supplies. His people needed walls to defend themselves, and Aeneas himself yearned for somewhere to lay his head. But where to build their new home? Old Anchises had a thought. The gods had shepherded them from Troy, so let the gods guide them now. On to Delos to consult the oracle of Apollo. In a small chamber thick with smoke and incense, the young priestess writhed and trembled until from her lips came Apollo's voice. The earth that birthed you shall receive you again. Go to the land of your forebears. Aeneas and Anchises shared a look of wonder. Crete, they shouted. Set a course for Crete. I gave Apollo hell for that. You have to be so specific with mortals. Crete was a disaster. After a year on that island, the earth turned barren, refusing to yield any crops. Then came a plague that ravished the Trojan refugees. It was only then that they realized they might have gotten Apollo's message wrong. Not Crete, said old Anchises. He remembered a story from his youth, a confused account. He dismissed it as a fable. It said the Trojans came from a land across the sea, the place the Greeks called Hesperia, and others knew as Italy. Italy, at last my son knew his fated home. Reaching it would be another matter. Back to the sea they went, back to the storms and Juno's wrath. The clouds seemed to follow them. Black days, starless nights, no sight of land by which to navigate. They sailed through endless water until Aeneas wondered once again if he had led his people to their doom. But at long last, they glimpsed a distant crop of land on the horizon. Aeneas shouted for the men to drop the sails and pick up their oars. As they neared the island, they could see that it was small, but green and fertile. A herd of cattle grazed in the fields, and scores of goats lounged on the rocks. Ascanius raced across the deck to join Aeneas at the railing. Is this Italy? He asked, earning a laugh from his father. This isn't our new home just yet, said Aeneas, but it's just what we need. We'll resupply, repair the ships, rest up for a few days. Aeneas saw his son's face fall and felt a pang of guilt. The boy had spent almost half his life wandering the sea by this point. He had only the faintest memory of the home they'd left behind. Even Creusa was fading from his mind. Aeneas only had to stoop a little to bring his face level with his son's. You know, those goats aren't going to catch themselves, he said, and saw Ascanius's eyes light up in excitement. I'd say it's high time you learned how to hunt. That evening, the refugees stretched blankets on the sand and lit bonfires to roast the cattle they'd slaughtered. Aeneas laughed as some of the men hoisted Ascanius onto their shoulders and carried him around the camp, celebrating the lad's victory. That boy is something special, said old Anchises, seated beside Aeneas. The gods favor him just as they favor you. Aeneas's smile faded. It doesn't feel like favor after everything we've been through, he said. Anchises shook his head. The fact that we're alive after all we've been through says everything. Aeneas nodded respectfully. Apollo's oracle had promised a new home in Italy. Perhaps now that they knew where they were going, things would be different. Suddenly, the night filled with the sounds of beating wings and the most horrible shrieks. Aeneas looked up to see more than a dozen dark shapes descending from the night sky. 
The nearest shape swooped low over the camp, screeching and laughing in a voice that was neither animal nor human. Aeneas dove to shield Anchises with his body. When he glanced back over his shoulder, he saw the thing hovering above them, lit by the glow of the firelight. Harpies. No monster under the sun was ever as cruel. No disease spat up from hell as vile. Creatures with the form of great birds of prey and the heads of human women, they feed and feed and are never satiated. Their shrieks burst men's eardrums. An acrid discharge oozes from every orifice, defiling everything it touches. And the smell. The smell alone almost brought Aeneas to his knees again. His head swam, and he staggered forward, trying to make sense of the unfolding din. Pandemonium seized the camp as the refugees scrambled to escape their winged attackers. Some ran for the ships, while others tried to fight off the harpies with what they could find. The laughing creatures fell on the food, stuffing their faces and spitting bile over the rest. Curved talons lashed out, raking backs and limbs. The shrill laughter rang over the beach, stoking an old fire in Aeneas's heart. Five years had passed since the fall of Troy. Five years since Aeneas had grasped a sword, but the warrior had never left. Arms, he called. The scattered sailors found their footing and formed ranks, remembering their old courage. Plates became shields, cups became cudgels. Aeneas seized a blazing log from the bonfire and charged his ugly enemies. Light flew from his every swing, as if he wielded the sword of Jupiter instead of a branch. The harpies were surprised by the Trojan fury. They took to the sky, hurling indignant curses and licking their wounds, and limped back to their cave in the mountain. All but one, their mother, Kalino, perched on a low cliff above the refugees. She fixed Aeneas with a poisonous glare and barked almost a loathsome curse. Wretched humans, she snarled. Fiends and gluttons, slaughter our cattle and try to drive us from our home? Well, I know what it is you seek. I heard it from Apollo, and he from Jupiter, and I'll tell you a secret. You will not find the land you dream of soon, not until you've suffered greatly, not until you've hungered. Before you rest, you will be so ravenous you will gnaw your own tables. You will eat your very plates. Then, and only then, will you know you are home. Having said her piece, the Harpy Queen spread her wings and soared into the night, leaving only her foul stench behind her. Aeneas watched her shrink into the darkness until she disappeared. Then he turned to his people. None moved. He could see in their faces that Kalino's words had filled their hearts with fear, just as they had his own. Did the harpy truly know the will of the gods? How long would they be forced to wander? Would Ascanius be old and gray before he got a home? Aeneas did not have the spirit to address his people or to address their fears. He found his son amidst the crowd, looking winded but otherwise unharmed. Then he found Anchises and helped the old man to his feet. Does it look like the gods favor us now? Aeneas asked his father bitterly. Anchises turned pale but did not respond. Turning to face the sea, he wandered out until he was at the water's edge, fell to his knees, stretched his arms to the heavens, and in a loud voice began to pray. Aeneas took his son's hand and headed back to the ship. After the break, Aeneas meets the queen of Carthage. Now back to the story. 
After the fall of Troy, Aeneas and his comrades wandered for over seven years. They were followed by strange omens, good and bad. From the Oracle of Apollo, they learned that they were destined to settle in the distant land of Italy. From the harpy Kalino, they learned that they were still far from their new home. When the Trojans heard this, Aeneas was badly shaken, but his father urged him not to lose hope. If the gods had chosen a home for them, then that was where they would go. My son was a pious man. Granted, he had his moments of doubt. To err is mortal. But Aeneas made regular offerings to Jupiter, prayed to his gods of the hearth, sought the favor of Apollo and Minerva. His greatest efforts went to appeasing Juno, for he had heard that he had spurned her in some way and was desperate to make amends. I would have told him it was a waste of time, but he never stopped praising her. Anchises raised him well. It was a comfort to know that my son had that man beside him, if only he could have stayed longer. Anchises passed one night as they rounded the tip of Sicily. Aeneas buried his father at the Cape of Drepanum, a most painful loss. It was then that Juno sent it, the storm to end all storms. It routed their ships, split the fleet, brought them to the brink and set them far off course. When the clouds finally parted, only seven ships remained. Aeneas stood dripping on the deck and stared in wonder at the shore before him. And beyond the shore, white steeples, endless spires, the great walls of Carthage. Carthage, Juno's beloved city, what strange twists of fate drew the travelers to your door? Through the cobbled streets they walked, balking at the bustling radiance, Aeneas's heart stirred with envy. Oh, how he'd longed for such a city. Fresh pillars were being raised before his eyes. Builders were hard at work completing a mighty temple. A huge white stone face peered down at them, lips drawn in a cold smile. Juno, lower your gaze, son. Aeneas whispered to Ascanius. The boy was balking at the goddess's massive statue. That's the queen of the gods you're staring at, and queens deserve respect. Entering the temple, they found a great throng of people gathered. Aeneas crept forward, keeping to the edge of the crowd. As he neared the front, he heard a familiar voice. Your grace, it said. You who are loved by Juno, have mercy on poor Trojan castaways. We were routed by the storm, torn from our fleet. I fear our comrades are all dead at the bottom of the sea. Aeneas plunged forward through the crowd until he burst out and saw the speaker. It was Ilianaeus, the captain of one of Aeneas's own ships that had been lost in the storm. And behind him were the other captains and many of their crew. By divine fate, they had been washed to the same shore. Aeneas, gasped the captain when he saw his commander standing before them. Is it really you? The men embraced, laughing like children. The other captains rushed forward, oblivious to all who watched them, until a clear voice rang over the din. More uninvited guests? I'm beginning to feel like a stranger at my own party. Aeneas turned toward the dais at the end of the room. There, on a great throne, sat the most ferocious-looking woman. A tangle of dark hair cascaded to her shoulders, draped in a purple robe. Bronze rings hung around her slender neck and arms, and gold paint shone from her stern lips. Aeneas stretched his arms wide and bowed. I am Aeneas the Trojan, he said. Everything Ilianaeus told you is true. We are exiles, carried aloft on the winds of fate and placed at your door. For years we have faced one arduous trial after another. 
plague, famine, harpies, Scylla and Charybdis. We spent a night in the shadow of an active volcano as she belched fire into the sea, and days inside a howling black gale. But the whole of our adventures are too grim, and I dare say far too long, to trouble one as busy as yourself. The woman fixed Aeneas with a piercing gaze, and her lips curled in a smile. Welcome, Aeneas the Trojan, she said. I am Dido, queen of Carthage, and I would like to hear that tale. That evening, Queen Dido welcomed them all to a feast at her palace. She placed Aeneas at the seat beside her and listened with rapt attention to the Trojan's tale. Dido was the perfect audience, laughing in delight, gasping in horror. She grew somber when he told her how he buried his father at Drepanum. And that's the end of it, said Aeneas. After that, we were caught in the storm and carried to your shores. Dido sat silent for a long moment, watching Aeneas with eyes ablaze. At last, she spoke. I know what it is to live in exile, to wander in search of a new home. When my evil brother-in-law Pygmalion murdered my husband, I was forced to take my people and flee. It was many years before we found this place and built the walls that protect us. I offer those walls to you now. Steer your ships into my harbor, rest and repair. The Trojans shall be no different from my own people. Let Carthage be your home. With one sad story, Aeneas won the Queen of Carthage's sympathies and more. His tale had awakened something unexpected in Dido, a desire she did not think she would ever feel again. The queen followed through on every promise. The Trojan ships were welcomed into the city's harbor. The refugees were given beds and food. Each night, Dido welcomed them to another feast and begged Aeneas for another story. She would seat Ascanius on her lap and dote over the boy. He was too big for it, but had not known the care of a woman in years and did not complain. By day, she paraded Aeneas around the city, showing him all that she had accomplished. The walls and ramparts, raised in just a few short years, the towers that were growing higher every day, threatening to challenge Mount Olympus. I rejoiced to watch Aeneas in those days. He was happier than I'd seen him since leaving Troy. Even the grief he carried for Anchises seemed lighter in that city. He was taken by its wonders and by its ruler. She, who was his equal in every way, who had braved exile and come out the other side stronger, who had welcomed him with open arms, when she was at his side, he glowed. It began as a shadow of a feeling, barely even a thought, imperceptible to Aeneas himself. Only I could see it. You'd think a son of the goddess of love would know his own heart, but you'd be disappointed. Unwatched, his feelings for her grew steadily, a single ember buried deep in a vast hearth. But Dido? Dido burned. Every night she prayed to me, give him to me or take him from my thoughts. I cannot bear it. When they were apart, she wandered the halls of her palace, sleepless. Carthage, her former obsession, went untended. Buildings ceased. Soaring cranes stood unused, teetering in the wind. And the mighty temple of Juno sat unfinished. Hunting together one bright morning, Aeneas and Dido were caught by surprise in a sudden storm. It sent them running, leaping over rocks and through ditches, until they finally took shelter in a small cave. There, huddled in each other's arms, they forgot their duties and troubles and became one. The flashing sky and groaning thunder gave witness to their union. They could have stayed that way forever, but the fates had other plans. 
Not long after, Aeneas was walking the outskirts of the city alone when he came upon a stranger, a tall, slender figure in a traveler's cap and cloak. When he saw my son, he sat down on a rock, removed his sandals, and began rubbing his tired feet. Curious, Aeneas asked him who he was. Had he brought some message for Carthage? Not for Carthage, the stranger replied. My message is for you, Aeneas of Troy. The traveler stood and stretched to full height. For a moment, Aeneas heard the otherworldly timber of his voice and saw the wings at his feet. This was Mercury, herald of Olympus, messenger of the gods. What are you doing here, Aeneas? growled Mercury. Your ships are repaired, your strength replenished, but here you stay, playing husband to Dido. Did you forget Apollo's words, that your own kingdom waits for you in Italy? What need do I have for my own kingdom now? Aeneas asked. Carthage has given us everything I searched for, a reprieve from wandering, walls to shield my people, even a mother for my child. Would I not dishonor myself by abandoning her after so much kindness? Mercury glowered. Dishonor, Aeneas? You dishonor yourself with delay. To march boldly toward your destiny, to give yourself to the path the fates have chosen for you, that is the greatest honor. You think Ascanius needs a mother? That boy will be a man soon, and the fates have promised him a throne in Italy. Would you deny it to him? In a flash, the god was gone, leaving Aeneas alone. He stood motionless, his mind reeling. Oh, Anchises, how my son needed your counsel then. He wandered through the night, a dark storm raging within his mind. When dawn came, one thought remained. What would he tell Dido? Whatever you tell her, say it quick, I would have counseled, but men never learn. Days later, he found her in a courtyard, overlooking a growing heap of timber and cloth. A line of servants carried in more objects to add to the pile. Looking, Aeneas saw many of his own belongings, his clothes, his armor, the couch he'd given Dido, even his sword. Did you think you could fool me, Aeneas? She asked in a voice like ice that you could disappear without a word after you got what you wanted. My guards have seen your ships loaded with supplies. Your people are making preparations to leave. Do you deny it? He did not. My queen, I would never think to deceive you, he explained. I only wish to find the right time to explain. If I could choose my own destiny, I'd be back at Troy right now. But the gods have chosen another path for me, another place. Who are we to question what the fates have wrought? The queen turned away then. Go, Aeneas of Troy, she said. Go back to the sea that brought you here. If the gods have any sense of justice, they will wreck your ship upon rocks and let you freeze on some distant rocky shoal. From this day on, our people will be enemies. Aeneas sighed and said, You have done me so many kindnesses, my queen. I will remember you fondly as long as I live. And with that he left, taking his comrades with him, and Dido burned. "'Bring me oil and incense,' she whispered, trembling. Her servants flew into action, and soon the pile of Aeneas's belongings was engulfed in flames. Dido stood on her balcony above, watching the Trojan ships stream across the bay, making for open water." Will this stranger not leave my sight? She said, shaking with anger. May he see the smoke and know what he has done. With that final prayer, Dido turned 
and threw herself onto the blazing pyre. As smoke billowed around her, she seized Aeneas's white-hot sword and thrust it through her chest. I wonder how Juno felt then, watching her beloved Dido writhe. No doubt she fumed in anger, made worse with the knowledge that this was her own doing. Hers and mine. When Aeneas first landed in Carthage, Juno had come to me with words of peace, asking me to put aside our feud. Dido and Aeneas make such a handsome match, she said. Why not let them marry, let their people join, and we will rule their hearts together? I saw through her ploy, of course. She wished to block my son's destiny, keep him in Carthage away from Italy so that Rome would never rise to threaten her favored city, as if she could stop what the fates had wrought. I agreed to her terms. If Jupiter allows it, I will follow your lead. I lied. Aeneas would not, could not stay in Carthage forever. So let them fall in love, I thought. I'd do my part, send Cupid to ensure the romance took, have Dido open her heart and home to Aeneas. Let him rest, let him know happiness again, even if just for a moment. And when the time came, let him leave. As he sailed away from that city, he watched the black smoke curl into the sky. Thank the fates he did not know what truly fueled it. He would have blamed himself, but he would have been wrong. The chains of fate reach back farther than even the gods can see. But the queen's blood was on my hands more than any others, for I was the goddess of love, and I had seen Dido's heart. I'd sensed its pulsing fire, the endless well of passion, not unlike my own. I knew where it all might lead, but when she threw herself onto the pyre, I did not regret it for a moment. All that mattered was that my son was safe. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Mythology as we retell the Aeneid. This Thursday, we'll continue the story of the Trojan refugees as Aeneas's quest for a new home takes him into the underworld. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy Mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every Wednesday we dive into another dark, classic tale. Mythology will be back on Thursday with another epic story. Mythology was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythology was written by Andrew Kelleher, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 